I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Now we're into another one of our deep dives, and this month we've gone for one of our uh, cinematic heroes, I imagine, definitely from our formative years, and that is John Woo. Look, I still remember when I discovered John Woo. It was in a video source on Bread Street in Hamilton. I remember it very yeah, well. Yeah, just a, across the road from the police station, and the um, yep. I think it was a countdown or maybe... This, this was back in 1994. I was looking for something, kind of anything new that I hadn't seen before, and there was this big clamshell VHS cover with a picture of a handsome Asian actor in SWAT uniform, creating a shotgun in one arm and a baby in the other. Uh, It was so weird. And it had this breathless quote from Empire Magazine that described it as more exciting than a dozen diehards. The film was called Hardboiled. I rented it and I was hooked. I'd never seen anything like it. And what I didn't really comprehend at the time in that kind of pre-internet era is that John Woo was having an impact on more impressionable minds than just mine. John Borman described 1990's Bullet in the Head as an explosion of vast energy. And after a Universal Studio boss stated that Wu can certainly direct an action scene, Quentin Tarantino was supposed to have replied, yeah, and Michelangelo can certainly paint a ceiling. <laughs> um, he'd become more than just a local sensation. He was back in Hong Kong. And so we're going to talk about him a bit today, and I think um, maybe uh, it's prob- probably good to set the scene a little bit about what Hong Kong cinema was. Hong Kong cinema seems to have had its origins in the Chinese opera. The first two short films known to be made were the comedies Stealing a Roasted Duck and Right a Wrong with Earthenware Dish. Oh. Uh, the director was a theatre actor, Liang Shaiaobo, and the producer, Benjamin Brodsky, who along with other American investors helped develop and influence the Chinese film industry purely through viewing it as another market to exploit. They didn't seem too interested in art. They were just right. like, we've got the numbers here. Let's go after yeah, it. Yeah, we can yeah. get a foothold in this because, you know, the same way that uh, everyone got a foothold in the American cinema. Yeah. Now, the Shaw Brothers were the central Hong Kong film studio in the 1960s and 70s. Built on the success of 1963's The Lover Turn, a blockbuster in Hong Kong produced by the studio's founder, the awesomely named Run Run Shaw. Oh, I love that name. Uh, a name that could only be improved upon if he was knighted, which he was, so he became Sir Run Run Shaw, uh, which just makes me feel like he should be a member of Run DMC. Uh, <laughs> he was a giant of Asian cinema. He lived until he was 106. I didn't know that. And he not only had universities named after him, but also an asteroid belt, which is 289 Run Run Shaw, which also sounds like that's where the aliens are going to be in Covenant. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hope so. Yeah. Oh, we're, yeah. No, we're just landing on this planet. Um, two eight nine nine. Run, run, Shaw. We're just like, bad can happen here. Yeah, we're just building a, a colony. You know, sure, we'll be fine. Now, the Shaw brothers dealt with a highly professional, uh, traditional studio structure, much like the American counterparts. They handled like stables of stars and distribution themselves. Their successes sprung from dramas and musicals based on Chinese opera and incorporating a very theatrical style. And much like their melodramatic films, a real drama engulfed the studio as the Shaw brothers were eclipsed by a mutiny. Uh, Two of the executives left to form Golden Harvest, a name you probably recognize because they were at the front of every kung fu film you saw as a teenager, uh, responsible for bringing both Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan to international audiences. 
Golden Harvest style of like helter-skelter production and artistic freedom influenced Hong Kong cinema for decades, and their rise to prominence coincided with John Woo's. I have such a fondness for that Golden Harvest logo. Yeah. The way it would appear, that box. Doo, 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 doo. Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. You always knew you were into a good time when you saw Golden Harvest. Yeah. Look, so we're going to be talking about John Woo, and I think there'll be people who know who John Woo is, mm. but but I think we're probably going to be talking about, I've got a feeling that you and I are both going to be talking about what we think of the, the classic John Woo style yeah. and the classic John Woo period. And so the classic John Woo style, and we certainly mean from 1987's A Better Tomorrow kind of onwards, was his embrace and really refinement of what came to be known as the heroic bloodshed film. Mm. Um, the heroic bloodshed subgenre embraced themes of brotherhood and loyalty, betrayals and characters with rigid moral codes, themes already precious to Wu from his previous films, and it set them in contemporary Hong Kong, which was kind of a move away from a lot of the kung fu films that we'd seen. Amid a world of rival gangs, ruthless criminals, noble killers, and sometimes heroically dri- driven cops, the films replaced the stylized violence of kung fu with an equally stylized violence of wildly bloody gunfights where heroes die, roll, and leap through the air in balletic bouts of gunfire. John Woo wasn't the first filmmaker to dabble in heroic bloodshed, but he was amongst the first, and he definitely popularized the films in a way no one had before him. Woo was the first to put a gun in each hand of a hero and have them blaze away in slow motion, preferably with doves flapping past. <laughs> His use of cinematic techniques from the French New Wave, such as Francois Truffaut's use of still frames and his admiration of films such as Le Samurai, which oh, I love that film, yeah. uh, gave his films a unique style. And no one, just no one could make a shootout look as violent, as beautiful as Wu could. And if heroic bloodshed was all about friendship and loyalty, no one did it as, as aggressively and single-minded as Wu. Uh, in his films, heroes, usually including his favourite actor, Chow Yun-Fat, stare at each other with what looks like barely contained longing, even if they're on either side of the law. Women, when they do appear are his love interests so pure that it barely registers as love at all, Uh, especially beside the almost lustful looks passing between its gun-toting leads. (laughs) His plots lean heavily into melodrama. They don't do so much defy belief as discourage it. You certainly need to accept face swaps, Shakespearean gang wars, and the presence of Jean-Claude Van Damme to enjoy his films. (laughs) Uh, Religion is present in almost all his action films, though seldom explicitly referenced, and Wu never takes sides, preferring to reference a simple kind of spirituality. Nonetheless, the statue of the Virgin Mary exploding in the killer becomes the ultimate sin against purity and goodness, and origami birds become an almost Buddhist reflection of souls released to be born again and hard-boiled. Wu is a believer, even if it's never really clear exactly what he believes in. The body count is a strange thing too, I think, you know, yeah. which probably needs to be addressed. I, I re-watched Bullet in the Head recently. I was struck by how difficult it is to kill a hero in these films, <laughs> or indeed a lead villain. They really take bullets, and when they do, they can take a whole lot of them, you know? <laughs> At one point in Bullet in the Head, the heroic Ben appears to take a shot to the back to no discernible real effect. <laughs> um, and in the finale, he is riddled with gunfire and still survives till the closing credits. On the other hand, henchmen are dispatched with ease, mere shaft to the bullets of everyone around them. It's fantastical and kind of ludicrous, but if you see these films in an extension of the Kung Fu films, uh, which was dom- the dominant action genre of Hong Kong, obviously, then it makes sense. In martial arts films, the heroes kick, punch, and stab their way through faceless goons who fall at the first punch, only to engage in long, bloody, epic battles with the chief villains. The heroic bloodshed films are kind of just kung fu masters with guns in their hands. Yeah, and, and as you hinted at, I mean, he kind of came from Christian beliefs, which very, held very strong. Wu's family lived in impoverished conditions in Hong Kong after fleeing persecution from communist China because of their Christian beliefs. Uh, these beliefs held strong in Wu, who wanted to become a Christian minister. 
Uh, he loved the Wizard of Oz and American Westerns, especially Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The influence of the famous final freeze frame of two men blazing guns being particularly apparent in his work. But Wu also shares characteristic building blocks with Martin Scorsese. Both were sickly children who found solace in the movie theatre. They were born into fast-paced cities, under the watchful eye of heavy Christianity, and gravitated towards a seminary, only to be eventually drawn away by another strong calling, the cinema. And even though of a similar age, Wu appears to have been influenced by Scorsese, and wears this with pride, as he does with his other influences, Jean-Pierre Melville, uh, French New Wave Freedom, and the scope of the American Western, all wrapped up in the gangster genre. So that those kind of influences are quite heavily obvious. Yeah. Of Christianity, right. Scorsese, Melville, uh, American Westerns. Um, but as you said, uh, he was also the, the first one, I think, uh, to really heavily popularize uh, these conflicts in a urban gangster setting. Yeah. Until that, it was slightly removed. And even though his films are fantastical, these gangster kind of things, and they're not exactly gritty, you know, they're very stylized. I think that was something that was new. That subgenre was boiling away, but he popularized it, and then suddenly they all exploded. So yep. Ringo Lamb does City and Fire, and yes. you know um, Sue Hark's doing stuff. Yeah, and who he famously fell out with, Sue Hark. Yeah. So and I, ma- I imagine we're uh, we're both going to be talking about John Woo post eighty seven, his di- directorial career post his genre defining hit A Better Tomorrow. Prior to this, Woo had made fourteen films in thirteen years, and uh, Confession Time. I've seen bugger all of them. Mm, so uh, have I. I haven't hardly seen. Any- I don't think I've seen any of them. Oh, look, in part it's because they can be hard to find. Uh, Wu made a lot of broad comedies and family-friendly films before becoming the god of gun carnage we know today. He was touted at one point as the new king of comedy, which is (laughs) remarkable, isn't it? That's great. Uh, But I suspect they're the sort of films that don't play to Western taste that well. He also helmed a few martial arts films, and they're much easier to find. You can see in films like Last Hurrah for Chivalry and uh, The Hand of Death, hints of the filmmaker he would develop into. They're stories of male friendships and of the importance of honour, and the action is clear and easy to follow, as it was in all of the era's Hong, uh, Hong Kong kung fu films. And really bloody as well. <laughs> Surprisingly so, actually. Uh, also, Wu uses slow-mo more than is common for the time, particularly in non-action scenes, if you know what I mean. Naturally, they're pretty melodramatic as well. I'd really like to track down a copy of To Hell with the Devil sometime, since it's Wu's only stab at comedy horror. He only made one. Right. You know, there was a little period in Hong Kong where comedy horror was actually a, a big thing. Yeah. A lot of, um, lot of uh, bouncing vampires and ghosts <laughs> and things. Um, um, that's a great title too. Hell with the devil. Yeah, yeah I know. Eh? It's yeah. uh, that's a metal soundtrack. That's a striper, isn't it? Oh, is it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or maybe it isn't such a great title. Maybe it's not. Eh? <laughs> yeah, that's one of their albums. Oh, okay. That's just made me. Oh, look, and and last hurrah for chivalry. It has this great scene where the film's two heroes battle a narcoleptic swordsman, <laughs> which is amazing. Like he's constantly falling asleep, and when he's asleep, he's dangerous. But when he wakes up, he's kind of easy to beat. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Who would have thought it was one of my favourite things. Oh, it's great. But really, it comes down to a better tomorrow. That was quite incredible, and it completely revolutionized uh, Hong Kong cinema. Uh, then he did a better tomorrow part two uh, the next year, yeah. which he fell out with Sue Hark over. So it's a, a, a sequel in which they do the brilliant, oh, um, Cherry on Fat's character, he, he's got a twin brother, even though he died in the last one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, we'll just chuck him totally. in. Everyone loves Cherry on Fat. He and Sue Hark fell out, and Sue Hark and um, you know went off did a better tomorrow part three. Yeah, uh, with, with Charlie on Fat, I believe. Yeah, he did. But he also put obstacles in front of um, all of Wu's suggestions. So Wu was like, "I want to do the killer," and he went, "No one wants to see a film about the killer. <laughs> no one wants to see a film about assassin." That's amazing. And and just made it very difficult for him to get films made. Uh, he went off and did um, the killer. 
a bit of tomorrow and a bit of tomorrow too were actually very successful, but the killer wasn't particularly successful. Not as successful as those. Certainly not at home. No, not at home. And neither was hard boiled, interestingly. Yeah. Uh, and bullet in the head wasn't particularly either. Yeah. So it's interesting to see because I think for me. I think Bullet in the Head, Killer, and Hub Order are all far superior films to Better Tomorrow and Better Tomorrow 2. Yeah. But they're not as loved. They're not as the, make a, the trinity for me of, um, yeah. Yeah. But, but, but they did travel, I think, yeah, more they importantly. Tra- exactly. They traveled better, in fact, yeah. probably. Um, and also, when you look at Wu and his glory years from, I'd say, particularly 86 to 92, he does A Better Tomorrow, A Better Tomorrow 2, Bullet in the Head, Once a Thief, The Killer, and Hard Boiled. So he does like six films, which are pretty much. Uh, they're not flawless, but they are as close to flawless as you get in the action cinema. And that's striking that he basically did six amazing films in six years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was one of those that I would regard as uh, the best action film. Yeah. Just the best pure action film you'll yeah. ever watch. Yeah. So, yeah, that is an amazing little yeah. period of time. Eh? Yeah. And you can see why people are kind of like trying to get him over to the US. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Look, uh, John Woo had a couple of stabs at the U.S. market, or as Duncan likes to refer to it, Holly Woo. <laughs> in 1993, he teamed up with Jean-Claude Van Damme to film a very silly, most dangerous game remake that in many ways looked like a Woo film. Doves flew in slow-mo and bodies fell in slow-mo, riddled by 100 bullets. Though this being a Van Damme film, JC had to also execute balletic leaping spinning kicks to bad guys who were almost certainly so full of lead they were well dead already. <laughs> Ridiculous. The film was okay, I think. Memorable for a scene where Van Damme punches a snake and for the fact that he sports the most luxuriously oily mullet in cinema history. If you ever caught it on TV, you would have seen the television edit, which removed enough of the action to make fight scenes incomprehensible almost. John Woo's action scenes are far too well choreographed to survive having shots removed from them. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of action films, you can take out some shots and it kind of works, but his films are so beautifully put together mm. that you take out moments of impact and things just fall apart. Yeah. Three years later, he had our higher profile hit with a more conventionally shot action film, Broken Arrow. John Travolta gets scenery chewing role as an Air Force pilot turned terrorist, and Christian Slater gets to play a hero and chase him down. But Broken Arrow otherwise seems passionless to me. The sort of film you wouldn't suspect was made by an auto action director at all. Mm. There are a couple of TV movies, neither great, one quite bonkers and starring Dolph Lundgren, no less. <laughs> Either side of one of his finest, wildest films, and easily his best US effort, Face Off, which we'll talk more about later. But after that, the stateside wheels really began to fall off. Whereas Broken Arrow felt curiously anonymous, Mission Impossible 2 was like a parody of a John Woo film. Or perhaps a film was directed by a John Woo tribute band. Mm. It made money, but yet it felt off to me. Wind Talkers dealt out Cornwall dialogue and concealed a truly interesting true story under the pyrotechnics of war and the pyrotechnics of a Nick Cage performance. <laughs> Curiously, it was released the same day as a film that would introduce a style of action that felt fresh and new and that would in its own way revolutionise action cinema, the Bourne identity. Mm. Paycheck is memorable only really for the joke possibilities of its title. <laughs> and then it was all over. The stateside experiment was finished and we returned to his career in China. Mm. Yeah, look, there's a slight melancholy when reviewing Wu's career. Uh, he was destined to revolutionise the stale action rut Hollywood had found itself in. Um, but while he barely put a step wrong in Hong Kong, as we mentioned, in America, Wu's superficial tropes were taken with none of his inventiveness, ambition or heart. Instead, Wu found himself free-falling through Hollywood with only really face-off to show for his troubles, uh, while his style was hijacked and morphed by the likes of the Wachowskis. In 2008, Wu was welcomed back to his homeland with open arms and box office success as the two-part Redcliffe starring Tony Leung, was embraced by Chinese audiences 
an operatic epic based on Chinese opera legends. I guess some things never go out of style. Yeah. And Hong Kong cinema had kind of come full circle. Mission Impossible 2, I think, was the highest grossing film of that year. Sure. And it still wasn't enough for him to kind of have any clout, you know, to be able to go, yeah. I'm going to go off and do this. I think it's a shame that he never got or never had the opportunity or maybe he didn't seek it out, was to kind of do something like he did with A Better Tomorrow because that came out of nowhere and he did that on a relatively small budget. Maybe he could have just gone away and done some kind of film where he had complete creative control over it. Maybe he could have found some, but he, he kind of instead kept going to the studio system and kept getting these big stars and these big expectations, you know? And you can see how something like Mission Impossible 2 is, is completely compromised because people were just like, oh, I'm not too sure. I'm yeah. not too sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, I know, I know, John, but this is also, we've got to worry about Tom Cruise and we've got to worry about the box office. Yeah. We've got to put a Limp Biscuit song in here. And you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you can kind of see how even without people taking cre- complete creative control away from him, how you can see it would get eroded just naturally by the process. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's tough. Face off, I think. I mean, we'll talk about it more later, but I think it's one of those ones where he, he did have a lot of control. Yeah. He was basically, he was off his leash and allowed to do his thing. Yeah. And that's possibly why it worked the best of those films. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he just didn't seem to work in those systems. No. Yeah. I mean, it leaves me with a troubling question. Is what is Wu's legacy? What has he left behind for us? And as much as I like to think he changed Jackson cinema, I don't think he did. Yeah. He certainly influenced directors like Tarantino and provided tropes for filmmakers to riff on. But separated from the choreography and the pure kinetic, almost balletic construction of John Woo's great action films, those other films just become what I said, kind of tropes and riffs, you know? Yeah. Sure, doves fly and someone leaps from behind cover in slow-mo with a gun in each hand, but the action scenes themselves remain mishandled and rote. It's easy to imitate, so much harder to duplicate, I think. Yeah. Uh, From Marky Mark's comical The Big Hit through Chow Yun-Fat's US calling card The Replacement Killers, both 1998. To even the sight of a poor man's Robin Hood leaping sideways through a doorway in slow motion, crossbows in each hand in the horrendous late 90s series, The New Adventures of Robin Hood. Even Dolph Lundgren ended up doing a, a, a riff in a film called uh, The Joshua Tree, I think. Right. There's plenty of people who have mimicked his style, but I'm not sure anyone has actually really equaled it. Yeah. And I think I almost equate it to, uh, say, like a musical movement like punk rock or, or grunge or whatever you want to call it. It's almost over before it begins. There's a brief period where that's cool, where it, where it's the trend, and then it's gone. And it, it kind of feels like it broke around that time, that 92 to 94. And then it was really done. And then after that, everything it started moving on. And I just kind of feel like um, those things became cliche very quickly, like the gunplay that you're talking about, yeah, yeah. Uh, the double guns, and, and other films started doing it. And you're just like, none of, none of this is working because yeah. it, there's something – cynical about these films taking though there's there's no real love for for what's really there in those woo films it's just taking stylistic yeah. things and say hey the kids are into this we'll just do yeah. this but it, but it's also it's taking those stylistic things without the beautiful meticulously structured action scenes yeah. and so that that's missing the point yeah i mean woo could structure an action scene in, in a beautiful way and I, it's one of my pet peeves with a lot of action films nowadays yeah. is that the action scenes don't feel well thought through and well constructed. No. They feel messy. They feel like they're created in the edit suite yeah. as opposed to created on the, you know. Completely. It's like it's like that, that, that thing of just um, putting as many cameras around as you can and then we'll just sync we'll, them all up and then we'll, we'll cut it. We'll, we'll cut find it, yeah. We'll find it. We'll we, find the rhythm. We'll find the pace. We'll find the what we're trying to say yeah. later. 
Let's which just is, get it. Yeah, which is something you never get from a John Woo action scene. No. And why I say that hard target, if you've ever watched the TV edit, doesn't work is because you can't take a moment away from that. Yeah. Because everything's built so perfectly. Yeah. You know? Dumbo! Thanks, Mickey Mouse. All right, now it's time for our top five. So this is our favourite, or, or, or what we think are the, uh, the must-see John Woo films. So, uh, Duncan, do you want to kick it off? All right, well, it seems pertinent to begin at 1986's A Better Tomorrow. This film changed not only the director and lead actor's careers, but also the course of Hong Kong cinema. On the back of only the most cursory amount of marketing, it became the highest-grossing film in Hong Kong's history at that time. So a tale of two brothers on either side of the law torn apart by guilt and blame at the death of their father, became a Hong Kong phenomenon. I've been waiting to say that phrase. Incidentally, it would be my ring name if I was a Chinese wrestler, the Hong Kong phenomenon. I like it. Uh, (laughs) But this Wu film, more than any, I think, benefits from Chow Yun-Fat. He explodes off the screen and steals the film from the two leads. He encapsulates the cool of Alain Delon and the reckless exuberance of De Niro in Mean Streets, both directly referenced by Wu here. Uh, in fact, he wore Alain Delon's brand of sunglasses, which proceeded to sell out overnight. Wow. Leading the famous French actor personally thanking Young Fat for wearing them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the long duster coat that he wore is now known in Hong Kong as the Mark Chow, his character's name, and was then worn by young men across Hong Kong despite the tropical temperatures. Imagine how hot <laughs> it must be just yeah, walking yeah. around. I've got to look cool because I'm in the suit and I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. wearing this duster coat but in Hong Kong. And despite these superficially cool elements, it is the character of Mark, uh, played by Chow Yun-Fat, uh, his place in the world that feels the most identifiable. He's like a natural-born killer whose heart is his downfall. While the other characters try to avoid their destiny, he's the one who wants to embrace it. Halfway through the film, the characters are dispersed to prison, hospital, the morgue. And later, when the living ones reunite, Mark is deflated when his former gangster friend wants to go straight. Because Mark has gone from highly ranked mob enforcer to low-level lackey. His physical injuries inflicted during a particularly memorable shootout, Avenging Friends, are a visible incarnation of his emotional injuries. Like a legendary athlete cut down in his prime, he wears his regrets on his face. And tellingly, at the end of the film, even the chance of escaping with a literal boatload of money isn't enough incentive to stop him from returning and fighting for his friends. Chaeyong Fat can sometimes be like a righteous, stoic presence, but in A Better Tomorrow, he has the brashness, the swagger, and most differently of all, the fun. Smile is written across his face, and he enjoys the brotherhood of the battle far more than he could ever enjoy any amount of money. Mm. It's it's clearly eclipsed by almost every later film that we made in that Hong Kong period. But I think yeah. it's a very important place to start. Just imagine watching that, and there had pretty much been nothing like that before. Yeah. That's what you're seeing. Yeah, it's interesting that you spend so much time talking about Chow Yun Fat, actually. Yeah. Rather than ruin this, because, yeah, it is such a breakthrough. He'd been like a comedy actor and, and like a soap opera star over there. So yeah. it was an amazing transformation of him. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, he he was superstar overnight. It's not that much of a spoiler because it's a woo film, but he dies at the end of it. Yeah. And uh, they brought his twin brother back in Better Tomorrow 2, um, <laughs> which is great. Uh, Better Tomorrow 2 isn't as good, but it is as entertaining, I'd say, yeah. in some ways. Does A Better Tomorrow 2 have the scene where the, the, the villain and the hero swap guns to continue shooting each yeah, other? Yeah, that's right. Oh, I love that. And it's also got this brilliant part where 
Charlie on Fat slide, uh, jumps backwards down a staircase and is sliding backwards down a staircase, shooting back up at a guy. Yeah. I, I love that. That's one of my favorite moments yeah. in any woo stuff. Uh, is that it's so good it's yeah. like super cool yeah. i mean completely illogical it makes no oh, sense at wow. all what the hell yeah <laughs> uh look john Wu's work in the u.s was as i said before patchy i have a guilty soft spot for hard target but it wasn't a heck of a lot else to get excited about fortunately he did manage one american action classic 1997's face-off nick cage and john travolta play respectively a terrorist and the driven cop on his tail until that is, plot mechanics force him to swap faces and trade identities. Now the cop must hide out as a mass-murdering psychopath, while the killer gets to play cop, and both actors get to have enormous fun playing each other. Uh, look, I loved Face Off. I saw it three times in the cinema when it came out. <laughs> yeah, I really did. The, pre- the premise is admittedly far-fetched, but no more far-fetched than the gangster hiding an arsenal of guns in a hospital and hard-boiled, or the bizarre relationship between Chow Yun-Fat and Danny Lee and the killer. In fact, if I had a criticism with Face Off, I believe they'd have wanted him to push the conceit a little bit further. What if the deranged killer became a better father and husband? Mm. And then they hinted that. What if he really did? What if the cop became a more efficient, more ruthless terrorist leader? <laughs> yeah. um, but Cage and Travolta are both so wonderfully, hammily overcommitted to the, the whole enterprise. Cage, a newly minted action star at the time, gets to instigate a prison brawl and Lear bug-eyed, his feigned joy at the carnage. Later, while high, he mimes removing his opponent's face while saying the line, I'd like to take his... Face off, uh, a line he had lived, right? Uh, which is tremendous too, because getting to use the movie title in a scene like that, yeah, oh, fantastic. But where it matters most in delivering on action, face off is a kinetic blast and amazingly mostly real. An opening scene with a runaway plane crashing through a hangar required the destruction of a real plane. A fantastic speedboat chase was performed by real stuntmen and real speedboats. This was Wu off the chain for the only time in his US career getting to make the kind of film he wanted to make with little interference. Trench coats flap in the breeze, henchmen are hurled through the air, and heroes dive sideways in slow-mo with guns in each hand, as you'd expect. But it's also well, so well-paced and so well-staged, and it's something Wu would do like no other director. Mm. Um, look, I remember back in the day buying a copy of the script. This was in the day before scripts were available online, and they were mostly published you know, as paperback novels, you know, yeah. which was annoying because while the words might have been there, the format was all wrong. You mm. know, that's not how scripts were presented. But the copy I had was an original script, as it would have been when it was submitted to the studios, you know, bound. and yeah. um, It was the first version as well, and I was surprised to discover it was a sci-fi film. Yeah. Yeah, full of flying cars and stuff. You know. Right. Uh, Boo apparently didn't connect with sci-fi. He'd never done one before. The futuristic setting wasn't something he related to. And he just said, you know, audiences won't care. Yeah, you know, just just make it now, make it contemporary. Yeah, and you know, I don't think I think he was right. Yeah, Absolutely I think he's right. right too. You know, yeah, I I hear that this is one that uh, had to go through quite a few rewrites before Wu would. They, they kept trying to woo. Yeah. They kept trying to woo woo. <laughs> um, and um, I'm really nailing the woo puns. Totally, yeah. Um, but yeah, they 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 were trying. They kept trying to get him for this, and he kept turning it down. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, he was reluctant, and mm. um, but yet it's, so, it's such a perfect film for him. Yeah, and it's such great fun. Oh, it's enormous fun. Yeah. Um, Cage and Travolta. You know, we often mock Cage's over-the-top acting, and yeah. here he is over-the-top to the max, yeah. and yet it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think because he, they do play both roles, so particularly Cage benefits from that by, by being nuts and then, and then having to play this nice guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, Cage and comes out of the best. I, think, right. he, I yeah. think he does. I think he gets the, the benefit of it, actually, in some ways. So Yeah, he does. Yeah. But Travolta's fine, too. And I yeah. think the fact that they're such big personalities and such big stars yeah. really helps things, you know? Yeah. Hard-boiled. 
resides in a special place in my heart. This, just like Simon, was the first Wu film I ever saw, and I watched it time and again, forcing my friends to watch it time and again, telling them that it was the ultimate action film. Safe in the claim that this was unlike anything they'd seen before. Every single one of Wu's trademarks are on display and turned up to 11. But what Hardboiled has that other Wu films don't is that the director had finally found his Newman and Redford, screen legends who transcended the films they appeared in. Individually, Yun Fat and Lung are the coolest actors on screen in any film they're in. And together, they're like this magnetic black hole drawing in all the excitement on display around them. The film has shades of the departed as a vigilante cop takes on the mob while an undercover cop has been so deep for so long that he nearly forgotten which side he is on. The film has three standout action sequences, evenly spaced throughout the narrative. The first, in a tea house, as Yun Fat slides down a banister, double-gunning a bunch of mobsters waiting at the bottom of the stairs. It also ends with Yun Fat rather cold-bloodedly killing a mobster. In unforgettable fashion, after fighting his way through a kitchen, he flips over a table covered in flour, he lands on top of a gangster and points his gun to his head. And like a punctuation mark, he finishes the action sequence by executing him point blank, spitting out his trademark toothpick milliseconds before he pulls the trigger. Yun Fat's face is pale white from the flower, suddenly speckled with red blood. Uh, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot explain to you what it meant to see that opening yeah. for the first time. I'd never seen anything like it. Never seen anything approximating that film. No. And then to watch that whole opening scene is just, uh, you know, change, change as a Film goer, it changed my life. Yeah, you know? and, and I was exactly the same. There's that part where Yon Fat leaps over and he's double gunning and he's kind of over like this, just tables at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And that alone, I was like, whoa. And never then, seen that before. Never seen that before. And then when he slid down the banister, I was like, just double gunning in slow motion. Yeah. And he kept cutting between the slow motion and then he moving really, really fast. Yeah. Down the banister, yeah, yeah. And then he cut back to him in slow motion. Yeah. And then that end, I was like, and just when he spits the toothpick out and then yeah. pulls the trigger and there's that blood. Totally. That, that first 10 minutes, like I say, changed my life. And that's not even the best action scene in the film. No, that's right. And that's the opening to Harbord. And it never really relents. Topping the sequence with a warehouse raid where the slow-mo really elevates proceedings. This warehouse sequence also ends with my favorite example of the face-to-face woo trademark. You know, with the face-to-face yeah. kind of standoff. With Tony Lung and Chow Yun Fat, because it's like a vital character and plot revelation happens in it. After an exhilarating flurry of carnage, it's like this wordless rejection of violence. So both of them are walking around in the mist, you know, after the yeah. tear gas have gone off, and they both swing around at each other and point guns at each other's face. But Yun Fat pulls his trigger, and he's out of ammo. Conveniently, the only time in the whole film he's yeah. out of ammo. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it doesn't go. And Lung just looks at him, and he's obviously got bullets left he knows and instead he just like you know uncocks his gun yep. and walks away and smiles at him and you and fat's like why has this dude done that yeah and i love that it's so good yeah and and that's my favorite example of of that trademark yep. of woo ever used in a film um, but that action scene is incredible just the you know there's this warehouse full of gangsters <laughs> and chang in fact just like abseils in on his own <laughs> yeah. just just shooting yeah, as he's just massacring people <laughs> yeah. i'm not sure that's legal i don't know <laughs> uh, it's amazing it is yeah but the creme de la creme has to be the hospital climax a rolling mall of exit wounds and explosions as gangsters tear apart a hospital that is used as a weapons front the film is comfortable using bandaged patients as human shields and collateral damage, but draws a line at massacring newborns who are instead memorably rescued by Chow Yun-Fat as the building explodes around him. 
but perhaps the most delicious icing on this layer cake of carnage is a sequence known simply as 2 minutes and 40 seconds, where an unbroken camera shot follows Yun Fat and Lung as they blast their way through two levels of killers, including Lung using a gurney as a trolley to deliver murder more smoothly and people jumping, backflipping through windows to avoid gunfire. Mm. Um, I love this sequence. And there's so many gut shots. And when you realize it's all taken in one take, you're like, man, the amount of um, things that could go wrong and just having to, you know, re- re- redecorate that set if it did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Must have been a, a horrible to, you know. But it's also amazing how confined a lot of it is as well. Even though it feels quite epic, it's actually confined in these hallways. Yeah. And again, it goes to that, as you were saying, Wu does so much through fast cuts most of the time. You know, kind of fast cuts or slow mo sequences, you know. But this is one that's completely devoid of cuts and has little flashes of slow mo parts in there. Yeah. Um, usually, the, kind of those strange ones where they swap sides of the of the corridor, yeah. so it'll just be like young fat and long sw- looking cool swapping sides, you know, yeah. throwing each other a gun or something. Yeah. Often, when you think of slow mo and you think of action scenes, you think of people doing action in slow mo. But we often slow mo things that weren't in themselves yeah. action moments. Yeah. And he, he he just understood when to do that and when to sort of and how it would look beautiful, you yeah, know, and how it would look meaningful. Yeah, ah, I love that. Got to be the uh, my my favorite action film of all time. I think mine too. Everything's measured by that film for me. You know, everything yeah. after that, and I think it's so great that that was his last Hong Kong film. Uh, you know, until he returned, you know, kind of twenty years later. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. No, agreed. If I was to summarise his act, his classic period in Hong Kong, and certainly the films we'd be discussing, it'd go something like this. A better tomorrow is prototype Wu. Mm. The killer is pure Wu. Hard-boiled is perfect Wu. And bullet in the head is the most Wu. <laughs> uh, starting off in Hong Kong, three bestest buddies get involved in gang fights, riots, and cycle hijinks. But one of them, Ben, played by world's handsomest man, Tony Leung, court, courts and marries his sweetheart. And that's the first five minutes of the film. Uh, a film that breathlessly careens from one emotion-charged moment to the next by way of an almost endless barrage of gunfire. From there, the three boys head to Vietnam to make their fortune, but instead get caught up in the Vietnam War, befriending Luke, who is, I, I'm not sure, a mercenary, a CIA agent, maybe a hitman, I'm not sure, and finding their loyalties tested. This is all probably too much for the 120-minute runtime, and yet it's also stuffed full of invention, pure intensity of feeling and balletic carnage that it can't help but be a ride. Uh, there is a stylish slow-mo assassination, implausibly but memorably set to a cover of The Monkeys, I'm a Believer, uh, a trick that Wu would later use for a sequence in Face Off that uses Over the Rainbow. A central sequence clearly referencing The Deer Hunter is overplayed but undeniably powerful, and Wu delivers a thrilling final car chase that is also a combination shootout with emotional callbacks to the film's opening. It was a bit of a flop in Hong Kong, as we discussed earlier, but Bullet in the Head solidified John Wu's stateside rep and it's clearly a passion project for the director that encompasses so many of his favourite themes. It's kind of a mixed bag of half successful elements, but it's one of my favourite of his films, perhaps because it is such a personal film for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, like his religious beliefs, Wu's politically, political ideas are kind of a bit sketchy as well, I think. Yeah. You know, riots show the British government as little more than thugs, and an obvious Tiananmen Square reference has the Americans as the, the tank-driving bully boys. Yeah. Yet later, U.S. troops, together with good guy assassin Luke, and I'm not sure where that comes from, uh, fly in to save the day, wiping out a horde of cruelly evil Viet Cong. It's kind of perplexing, you know? Yeah, it's a bit all over the place. I think it may have been planned originally as a three-hour film, right. which explains why it seems a bit rushed in two hours. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a strange one. Bullet in the Head was the last. I found this really hard to find this pre-internet days. I remember finding this really difficult to find a copy of this one. You could always find um, uh, The Killer and, and Hard World. Yep. And, and even Better Tomorrow. Yeah, I even Better to, Tomorrow I remember seeing on VHS. Yeah. I remember finding Better Tomorrow 2 and uh, Bullet in the Head were the two ones that were really difficult to track down. Yep. And I finally did in some sketchy VHS probably. Yeah, so it was quite late on, you know, of my kind of woo love that I actually discovered this one. Yeah, and the Deer Hunter stuff so clearly obvious in this. Yeah. And like you say, it is interesting. I know he was influenced by Tiananmen Square and was particularly moved by it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I get this idea of like he seems like a pretty zen peaceful kind of guy without like kind of just like hey not really into harsh dictatorships basically which most yeah. people are but there doesn't seem to be any clear political agenda yeah totally behind any of it other than oppression's bad basically yeah yeah pretty <laughs> much hey yeah yeah it's a little confusing on that point first film with tony long too uh who's yeah. so good tony long's amazing and, and, and again i think that's why when you go back and watch hard boiled that's why that also helps it being successful not only is woo on point but he's got this Charlie on Fat and Tony Long, I could watch either of those guys all day together. Together? It's just amazing. Dynamite, eh? Yeah. Fantastic. Just amazing. And finally, we reach the John Woo film. Look, it's difficult to overstate the impact of this film. Uh, it has been referenced by everyone from Tarantino to Wu-Tang Clan to us with my T-shirt and the accompanying photo of every episode <laughs> of this podcast. Uh, it appears on nearly every top 50 action film list. It, uh, it has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. It even contains every John Woo trademark. But in their most important and I think iconic incarnations, Doves, Churchbound Shootouts, Double Gunning, The Killer is not so much the style that makes it a significant John Woo film, but the thematic symbolism. With a killer in white and a policeman in black, it has what Private Joker and Full Metal Jacket called the whole Jungian thing, sir, trying to say something about the duality of man. Chow Yun-Fat is an assassin who, in a frankly awesome opening scene, massacres a nightclub of gangsters but accidentally blinds a woman. Feeling indebted, he cares for her without her realising that he is the person responsible for taking away her sight. The striking final shot of the two of them crawling amid the aftermath of carnage, blindly searching for each other, is the most poetic ending to not only a woo film, but almost any action film I can think of. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and in the two opposing male forces of the bizarrely self-named Mickey Mouse and Dumbo, <laughs> uh, we also have the homoerotic undertones on display, as you talked about before. And also, um, I, I like that woo hasn't discouraged that view of it. Yeah, I appreciate that too. Yeah, he said, you know, if you, if you want to read it that way, you can. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he says it's not intentional, but it's a no. fine reading. And I love the fact that he's open to that. Yeah, you know that yeah. he hasn't like shot it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I just, I mean, the killer is iconic in every way, shape, or form, and and, and everything's on display. Like his love of um, the samurai, John Pierre Melville's clearly in there. I mean, it's, yep. thematically, it's almost exactly the same. Yep. as that film, and she is so much with it. What I love about John Woo is it's kind of like Kurosawa in Japan, where he was influenced by all these Western films. And then he went on and turned and it influenced all these Western films after him. And I love exactly. that. And I love that. Kurosawa did the same thing. He took everything from John Ford. Not everything, but he took a lot from John Ford. Even like dressing like John Ford on set because he so loved John Ford. And then he turned around and influenced, you know, Sergio Leone and, um, you know, Clint Eastwood films. And, you know, and filmed well after that, after that time. Um, he influenced George Lucas, you know. And, and, and I love that. 
And it's the same thing with Wu. You know, he took all these things. He took things from European cinema. He took things from um, American independent cinema. Uh, he loved The Wizard of Oz. He loved Butch Cassidy. He loved these westerns. And then he, yet we see all these influences afterwards. And I, I like that. And I, that must be quite rewarding for him. Uh, I hope I hope it is anyway. Yeah, for him yeah, to see so his too. influence. You know, yeah. So I think the killer is the one. Um, if you if you're listening to this podcast, and you're not familiar with John Woo. Maybe you've seen Face Off. Maybe not much else. I'd say the killer is. Um, I I agree with you. I think Hardboiled is fantastic, and is my favorite Woo film by a long way. But I'd say the killer is the one to watch um, because it's so iconic. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, I call the the killer pure Woo. Yeah. Um, and I think that's true. I I think Hardboiled is the best. Yeah. It's, it's the one. I would find it easiest to recommend, but the yeah. killer's fantastic as well. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you. I think probably that is, if you want to understand who he is, yeah. that's the one to watch. Um, yeah. If you want to watch the best action from you'll ever see, Hard Boiled might be the one. Yeah, yeah. oh, I agree with that. Yeah. Spoiler alert. All right. Hey, thanks for listening to our John Woo deep dive. I hope you all got a little something out of it. Um, we had a lot of fun, like, reconnecting with someone who's really important to us, I yeah. think, you know. I, like I say, that discovery of him just it blew my mind, changed Changed how I approached action cinema, how I watched it. You know? Yeah, yeah, and 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 he's a real yardstick for me for measuring action films. Full stop. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and so the song we're going out to is from Harboil. Uh, yes, it's called Red Car Boogie. Ah, uh, this is amazing. I'd forgotten about it until you started humming it to me, <laughs> and instantly memories that go, oh, came back. What an extraordinary piece of music. Ah, uh, yeah, and uh, this is um, from a from a non action part of the film mm-hmm. uh, when. Tony Long is just driving in his car, and you can just see Hong Kong, and he's just looking cool in his car. Yeah, this is the introduction to Tony Long, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah, yeah. the man who I described as the most beautiful man in the world. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And he's like, bam, 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 bam. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope you enjoy it as much as we do. No more drugs for that man.